The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome to the first podcast for 2021 for the Global Liberty Alliance. We're very happy you're with us again. Keep your questions coming, folks. For you shy ones that do not want to send us audio questions, uh, please email us. Uh, That's fine. We will read them on the air. Uh, But this year, if you do send us the audio questions, we will post them. And you can listen to yourself if you you want. If not, just tell us that we will not post them. But thanks again for your questions. They give us a lot of ideas for uh, programs, and we appreciate the input. Today we have a very special guest, a professional colleague, someone who I met several years ago uh, through the foundation, through the Global Liberty Alliance. We're both fellow Panthers. Um, I did not go to the law school, she did. Uh, Laura Jimenez, she is a human rights lawyer, an immigration lawyer in South Florida, uh, and she represents uh, individuals not only in Florida, but also uh, globally. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the great work that she's been doing and hopefully you will uh, reach out to her if you need her. Laura, how are you doing today? Hi, Jason. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Uh, we're doing fine. How, how are things out in my former in my former 305? How are things in Miami? Things are good. Things are moving on. Finally, uh, we're um, moving faster little by little. Oh, the pandemic, every, you know, I was, I was down well, there during the, the holidays. the pandemic is also moving faster. There's a lot of more cases too, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that because it, it does impact, especially with some of the work that you do. Um, yes. Uh, of some of your clients and the urgency, frankly, that these human rights cases take on from the very first day because they are very stressful cases without the pandemic. With the pandemic, we're going to get your input about why, uh, what's, what are some of the challenges and how you've adapted uh, you know, I was down in Miami during the holidays, and I noticed that uh, even, you know, despite what the media is saying, out there, you know, people are taking this thing pretty seriously, even, even in Florida. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's great to see that. And uh, I think we're going to turn, hopefully, the corner someday, but we've got to stay resilient. And 2021 will still be a tough year, especially uh, in, in the type of work that we do, because the pandemic has still uh, not really died down. In fact, it may even peak again. So we have to keep, but you have to keep advocating. So before, before we get into your, your, your legal work today, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to the law, why you like being a lawyer, because you're a very good lawyer and, you. and, and you're very passionate about what you do. And let me tell you, that's something that every lawyer needs, especially if you're going to do human rights work. Uh, you, you need to have that love of the profession and helping people. So how did you come to it? And and it's interesting. And tell everybody, I I know the story. So tell everybody the whole story, if you can, because I think it's fascinating what you've been able to accomplish in just a short span of time. Long story short, I am an immigrant myself. I was born in Cuba and I left Cuba when I was 19 years old. Um, By that time, I already knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, But 
even though my political ideas were not um, that developed at that time, I knew that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in Cuba with um, with the Castros, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I moved to Mexico um, and I had to find my way to going to college and study law because there's no student loans in Mexico and I didn't have any money. So I had to work hard to be able to pay for college. So, so I so, became so, an attorney. So, so you, so you, you actually didn't come directly. You, 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 no. made, you made a stop in Mexico before coming over here. Yes. Yes. Okay. Right. And um, so I became a lawyer in Mexico. Uh, and my dream of being a lawyer was because I always had this um, idea that I wanted to help people and that I wanted to prevent people from being taken advantage of and from being abused. And at the beginning, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. But then after being in college and seeing how harsh can it be to be a criminal lawyer, I incline myself more to the human rights practice. Hmm. Um, how was, it, let me ask you a thing. How was, how was, um, so you knew from a very young age because at 19, that's, that's young. I mean, yes. it's not minor, but it's young. And, yes. and, and you grew up in Cuba, a place that is not the easiest. I, yeah. And I actually did one year of law in Cuba. And when I started, yeah. when I started studying uh, the, um, Karl Marx philosophy, which is one of the first subjects in school, and, and the history of Cuban law and the theory of the state and all that, I was like, oh my God, this is not really the path that oh, I want to take. Oh, well, this, this, this is, okay, this is fascinating. This is not what we're going to talk about, but I want our listeners to hear it. And then we'll jump back to your law school, your law work in Mexico and here. But how is law, and this is for people who may know nothing about Cuba lawyers or anybody, especially here in the States, how is it, you know, how is studying law in Cuba different? And how is the legal profession in Cuba different from being a lawyer, let's say in Mexico or Spain or here in the United States? Well, um, I cannot talk very much about it because this was like 20 some years ago. And um, I only did one year, you know, and I only took the basic subjects. I think probably the most advanced subject that I took, it was family law. Okay. Uh, but studying law in Cuba is for the people that are there and that they don't have uh, a comparative view of how it can be in other countries. It can be fascinating. However, when you get to practice, then I guess it's when the frustration comes because you can't really um, defend uh, many of your positions as a lawyer, because there is only one side of the law that is going to be implemented, you know. Wow. Um, wow. And I guess that was one of the reasons why I also unconsciously realized that I wanted to be something else uh, and not being told what to do, you know. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating because a lot of the lawyers I talk to in Cuba, one of the common things they will all tell you uh, forget about ideology, just on the profession. Yeah. A lot of them want to practice, but they can't because unless you work for the government's uh, law firms, you really are restricted in how you practice the, the profession. So if you want to have your own law firm, if you want to represent someone who's unlawfully imprisoned or political or non-political cases, just an unlawful detention case, it's tough. You you, it's tough. you, you, you can't really practice the way we do here. So let's go. Let's go then. This, this is this is all very interesting because you could tell it's formed 
your view about how you even practice your current work, because I know a lot about what you do. We're going to get to that in a minute. But how was that transition from Mexico to here and then becoming an American lawyer? That, that, that well, must not have been easy. The transition was hard because even though you can um, practice law in Mexico passionately, you also have to encounter with the reality of a third world country in which sometimes you're going to have to fight against people trying to buy a trial result. You know, wow. they tried to buy sentences and they wow. tried to buy the judge. And uh, I did, uh, my practice was focused on litigation. So sometimes I would even get calls threatening me because I sued, I was representing uh, a plaintiff, I was suing someone. Um, so when I got here and I started working first as a paralegal and I started learning how fair and how clean the practice was here, um, I was shocked, you know, um, and uh, I started to be even more fascinated by that because then I realized that you can actually put into paper that passion that a true lawyer feels for a client, you know? Well, say that again for American lawyers. I want American lawyers to hear this because a lot of American lawyers are become very bitter. Some well, of them become okay. bitter in the profession, but so, so tell us again. So like, th like things are worse, right? In Mexico yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. Like, like everywhere uh, and like what, what I have seen is that in the practice of law, there is always going to be many lawyers that are going to be driven by money and not by the passion of the practice, you know? And even though we all like money and we all like to have a comfortable living, uh, we can never lose perspective. This is a practice of serving people and you can never lose that. That's right. Side. That's right. Well, and, and and you know that if um, if you're passionate about something and you organize yourself, uh, you can make a good living being a yeah. lawyer. Uh, you just have to drive your passion for the law, your passion to do justice. I think that helps. If you if you focus on the other thing first, you're going to be very frustrated no matter what you do in life. So and yeah, and stress and miserable. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about some of the work you're doing uh, because right now. I know you're focused on, you have a, a very good immigration practice and you also have a, a general practice in Florida, but there's a very special case I want to chat about because you spent a long time working on this. It's the case of Ramon Arboles, yes. uh, a, a 45, 46 year old, former Cuban dissident. This poor man, uh, folks, uh, he was a dissident in Cuba. He he was a working guy. He wasn't really one of the more high profile ones. He was just somebody who wanted to be left alone, take care of his family. He just wanted freedom. He paid a high price for that. And, and Laura was uh, instrumental in helping save this man's life. And, um, you know, I think if no matter what else you do, Laura, in your profession, the fact that you were able to do this, I think, is a, a career high. And I, I know you don't like people talking about your accomplishments, but I will. It's, it's remarkable what you did and what your team did. And, and I was happy to help in a very small way, but what you all did for this man, this guy was expelled from Cuba, expelled from yes. Trinidad, expelled from Trinidad. Yeah. Uh, then he was, then he was ended up in Mexico and then eventually the crisis at, at the border here, share a little bit about the case, your, what lessons learned and, and then we'll get into a conversation about what can we do better. So tell us a little bit about Ramon. Okay, well, this is a case that we did together. It, it wasn't just me. You have to take some credit too. 
Um, and um, so basically, um, I took Ramon, Ramon's case by accident uh, sent fairly. Uh, Ramon's case was being handled first by Willie Allen, who I work with also. That's right. He's a great lawyer, by the way. Yeah, a, a wonderful, extremely uh, fair lawyer, too. Um, and um, so Willie was frustrated. We were on a trip to Texas because we, we had a, a hearing for a detainee. And uh, so Willie was expressing his frustration because Ramon has just uh, come to the border to ask for asylum and he had been denied all type of relief and he had been told to go back to Guatemala, basically, like the CBP officers were very rude. Um, so when I heard the story and when I heard his frustration, I said, oh, hey, let me, let me try to step in, let me see what I can do. And that's when I call you, Jason. Mm. <laughs> um, and I guess the moment that I saw that the case was so difficult is what it, um, I guess what made me decide to do more, even though I thought it was impossible. Um, so we started working on his humanitarian visa. Humanitarian visa was basically denied because we got a request for evidence from um, the department that it was basically an insult. Uh, a guy that was dying that we had sent pictures of him uh, bleeding out from the cancer that he had on his throat. And um, so we were almost losing all hope uh, and he was losing all hope because he thought that he was gonna die at the border. And he decided to cross the border. So even though CBP didn't have jurisdiction, I stepped in right away and I started to basically harass the CBP <laughs> officers calling every day. And I started uh, negotiating with a CBP lawyer uh, to request for his release. I sent uh, letters and evidence of his state. I, I told them that there were a lot of people here in the United States willing to support this guy, that he was a stateless person, that he had a very strong asylum case uh, and that he was dying and that we couldn't let him die. Yeah. You know, alone. And, and by the way, he this is the type of person uh, for folks who may not be familiar with the politics of Cuba and, and just and you can fill the gaps in force right now. What a stateless person is so people know. But I want folks to understand that this fellow and his family, uh, you're talking about a man who was detained in Cuba initially many years ago just because he was supporting freedom. He was supporting liberty for his country. This man was not looking for a handout. Uh, this man sacrificed. In fact, this man, Ramon, and his, and his colleagues were pretty much doing what the United States policy has been asking the Cuban people to do, right? To step right. in and, yes. you know, so US law, there's laws in place today that encourage people in Cuba and other countries to take control of their country's future. And that's exactly what this man did. And he paid a right. high price for it. Not once, not twice, but three horrible times, but for the fact that Laura and her team were able to grab this case and recruit people like Congressman Diaz-Balart, Senator Rick Scott, uh, Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, there were others, there were Democrats, Republicans, a lot of, I mean, it should never come to that. And, and, and she had not only a strong case because I read the case file, the case was very strong. She made a, a fantastic argument based on law, based on the facts. There was no reason to turn this guy around and 
part of that is the broken immigration system, our, our, yeah. ver our very broken immigration system, our very broken border security system. And people like Laura have to deal with this system day in and day out and could have died. When I saw right. this fellow's videos, this is horrible to see yeah. this fellow the way he was. And Mexico, by the way, didn't treat him very well either. Uh, no. they, they treated him like like subhuman person, frankly, at some point. But you just said an important term, and I want, I want listeners to know what that means. What is a stateless person? A stateless person is a person who has lost his rights or her rights in um, their own country. Uh, so when your country basically closes your doors to... Um, receive a fair education, receive a fair treatment, receive uh, medical attention, and any other basic benefits, then you lose your rights and uh, you're basically not recognized as a citizen of that state anymore. And if you don't have another citizenship or nationality or another resident in any other country, then you are a stateless person because you are a person of no country. And actually, if we, the law, the immigration laws recognize this phenomenon. Um, and right now on, on the last uh, thing that President Trump did before he left with the DED for the Venezuelans, one of the um, uh, requirements it's, is there is a stateless person that lived in Venezuela. Um, so this is something that is very common nowadays with all the phenomena and the political things going on in, in many countries. So, you know, when you came, before we finish up with Ramon's case, because I, 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 I want listeners to uh, hear the happy ending, and it was a great ending, but I want folks to hear uh, uh, to tell the story. When, when politicians, Republicans or Democrats, or parties talk about immigration, something that is kind of coarse, it gets under my skin when people just politicize it so much, because I'm, I'm, I'm the son of immigrants. My family, as well, I, I, I've never been to Cuba. My family came from Cuba during the Cold War. And I knew how much they suffered and how much they um, had a tough time coming here legally. They, they, you know, it was it was a tough journey. In fact, my great grandfather Laura went through Mexico. He couldn't come mm -hmm. here immediately either. He had to go to Mexico first. But what do you know? You spend your day in and out of this system, and how do you keep yourself centered in the light of so much bureaucratic back and forth and so much human suffering? Well, it's, it's hard because in the immigration practice, um, I, I deal with uh, a lot of people that are being deported, um, a lot of people that are being treated unfair, uh, either by uh, immigration officers or even by judges and prosecutors, uh, where they commit abuse of discretion on a daily basis. Wow. Um, and you have people that have spent... 10 years here or 20 years here, if they want to be deported for a human mistake, you know? Um, and then when they go to court, they are treated harsh and arbitrarily. So you, I get a lot of people here crying, uh, desperate, uh, because is their future where it's in my hands, you know? Right. Uh, and is their future where it's in stake? Um, and also even going to the most uh, basic part of the immigration practice uh, and applying for a green card. Um, I have, I have a, a client, for example, that he was wrongfully charged for traffic homicide in Cuba in 1981. 
and now he applied for citizenship so we could um, obtain all the social security benefits that he's entitled to. And now immigration is saying that he was charged for murder when he has had his green card for more than 20 years. Um, and this guy is desperate. This guy is 70 some years old. This happened by mistake uh, more than 40 years ago. And immigration should not um, should do their work, you know, they should do their um, their own study of the law. Instead, we had to do it for them and, and explain why this happened and how this doesn't come to the level of murder. And, and even though there's an exception of the immigration law that says if you committed a felony before 1991, you're exempt from the good moral character requirement. So they're not even you know, studying and working and doing the work diligently and so, effectively. So would you say, Laura, that you're looking at it from, you know, from the, uh, from the Washington vantage point, and let's say if you get, if somebody asks you, a member of Congress will ask you or somebody from State Department or DHS will ask you, you know, the, a lot of the, the, the politicians will say the border security, and I've been hearing borders broken forever. I mean, I've been involved in this in in law and politics now for almost 30 years, and I've been hearing that argument forever. However, I hear a lot from practitioners like you, the same story, that not only do you have to make your client's case, but you also have to go in there and explain and decipher the government's. You do the government's exactly. work also. Yes, exactly. So, That's what I'm saying. So, you, so, so in a case like Cuba, which everybody knows, there's no rule of law down there. So you really you have to be careful ascribing mm -hmm. anything to their judicial system because it's arbitrary. There's no due process. Mm -hmm. It's very little. And how, you know, what do you tell these people that spend, we spend billions of dollars a year to protect the borders. Supposedly we're supposed to have, you know, the people who come here legally have to wait years to go through the process. How, you know, what one piece of advice, and then we'll get to Ramon's story about how, you know, what would make this thing work better as, as a practitioner? I think, I think that um, having uh, a good leader, uh, a good director in, in the department will help them uh, to have a little bit more um, training on how to treat human beings. And you're not, I understand that um, immigrating to the United States is a benefit, but they're making it look to the client as they're doing them a big favor and you don't have to treat people uh in a lower uh standard yeah. than you you know they're all human beings and yeah we're you, all we're, we're all in this thing they're providing a service and if you look at it in, in, in the economic way these people pay yeah. if you pay a fee to apply for an immigration benefit it's not free you right. know uh, like it's a not, resident, it's not cheap, like a it's not cheap either. It's expensive. No, a, a green card is like uh, $1,225. Yeah. And if yeah. you have a family applying, then it can be up to $3,000. Uh, and even though you get this type of treatment, that is not professional. And even sometimes when they go with a lawyer, uh, I have to ask for a supervisor because the officer is, you know, harassing my client. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of custom border folks and there's a, it's a tough job, let me tell you, especially along the US-Mexico border. So it's not easy, it's dangerous work, but you're right. Uh, once somebody comes here, 
and they go through that process, there needs to yeah, be a certain, a certain, you know, certain treatment of these of but individuals. These, these officers should learn and they should know, they should be trained on how to draw the difference between a criminal and a decent person who is only asking for help. You know what I mean? Right. And no, it makes sense. It's it does not make happening. Sense. It does make sense. It's well, not happening. And well, it should happen. It has to happen. And I hope that you will keep speaking up about it because I think folks in Washington need to hear it. Uh, and from people who are in the trenches doing the work and representing these people because they're so detached from this that I think they need to expose themselves more to it. And maybe there'll be a little more empathy, a little more urgency to fix this thing. Let's get back to Ramon because there was a headline that I ran in NBC News about him, which um, kind of was, I believe, one of the catalyst pieces that spurred people here in Washington to act, which was Cuban dissident. And we'll post this for our listeners so they could read it. Cuban dissident denied entry to the US, waits at Mexican border as the cancer spreads. Now, we know this has a happy ending, but tell us a little bit about those last, that last week before he made it here. Uh, you went through a lot of, of legal back and forth with the government. He at well, one point disappeared. How was it when he came in here and how is he doing now? So that last week we were working with his wife and I was also working with Maite Luna who is a journalist that was uh, That's right. also helping in the case. And uh, we were working on gathering all the medical evidence that the department was asking for his uh, humanitarian parole. Um, and even though, so, and we also needed a sponsor and we were trying to knock on the door of several uh, institutions and associations and they were turning the back on him. Um, so he got desperate, the family got desperate because they saw no um, successful ending for this humanitarian parole and they had already exhausted uh, requesting for uh, a visitor's visa for medical treatment um, knocking on the door of CBP to ask for asylum. And this was the last uh, resource that they had and that we could offer to them. So they, I just lost communication with them for a few days. And the last thing was that I got a call uh, from a person telling me he's at the border. We don't know exactly at what border he is. So what'd you think, I, what what do you think when you received that call? Because I've I I've, think, I've, I've received those calls before, and they 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 are um they can be I great honestly, news. <laughs> listen, uh, Jason, I honestly thought that that was the best decision he made. Uh, if he hadn't made that decision, he wouldn't be here. Um, and the only advice that I can give uh, people who are on this situation of desperation mm. is to always contact a lawyer, even though the lawyer doesn't have jurisdiction. Uh, to negotiate with a CBP officer because technically the person is not inside the United States, so they don't have the right to a lawyer. You can always persuade, persuade a CBP officer and you, you can always make a case and CBP has lawyers too. And, and that's what I did. I, I started talking and uh, I came across with a very good officer at CBP. He was the only one that talked to me. He was the only one that gave me information. And I don't want to give his name because I don't want to get him in trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then he was the one who gave me the number for their lawyer. And I started harassing them. I started harassing the lawyer. Then I was able to speak with uh, the lawyer's assistant. And 
thank God he was uh, he was granted um, entry to the United States. That's phenomenal. And yeah. then he made it to Miami eventually. What mm -hmm. happened? How is he doing now? I know he's had several surgeries. So uh, he's starting he's starting uh, chemotherapy now. Uh, he had some surgeries. He's he's doing a little better, uh, and hopefully with the chemotherapy he will get uh, better. What lessons? Um, what lessons learned? For you know, what did you come out of this case with, and how do you think? I mean, would you take another one of these on? I would. Uh, mm -hmm. I definitely would. Um, even though these type of cases are very stressful, just like uh, the detainee cases are very stressful because you have the family and the client calling you and crying all the time. Um, I think it's a, it's a good uh, chance for a lawyer to do good yeah. and to feel rewarded uh, for what we do. Well, as, as we start to uh, hit the tail end of the, of the podcast today, I know you're heading off to a hearing uh, shortly. Uh, we like to ask folks who join us uh, to share with listeners, especially here in the States, although we're heard in more than 50 countries now, but here in the States, you know, why should uh, folks who maybe do not follow these issues like immigration or human rights or international issues closely, why should people here, why should we pay attention to what's happening, for example, in Cuba or south of the border? What's, what's so important that they need to know? Um, first of all, the uh, United States has always um, shown itself to the world as the land of freedom, and freedom is fairness too, and we need to, as the most powerful nation in the world, be able to uh, provide shelter to those who really need it. Uh, even though I recognize that there are many people here that have taken advantage of the immigration system and of the immigration benefits that we offer. Um, I think that we need to be better people and that we need to be better lawyers and that we need to be able to look around and apply the law for what it is and not for what we believe it should be. How did you, when you were 19 years old in Cuba and you thought about the United States and making it here, what drove you here? Like, why did you want to come here? Um, I wanted to come here because, as I said before, uh, Mexico, even though it's a country that I love, and there are many people there that I love, uh, is a third world country with many flaws, flaws in, in their legal system and flaws in the um, benefits provided to the community. Uh, um, and there's no security, there's a lot of violence. And uh, we have been uh, assaulted. I have been receiving threats because of my practice. And I didn't wanna have to show the type of case that I was gonna do, uh, worrying that if I took a very good, important case, I was gonna be putting my life and my kid's life in jeopardy, you know? Um, I am the type of person that I'm driven by difficult cases mm. and not by the easy ones. And <laughs> in Mexico, if you take a difficult case, then you come across the fact that there's always going to be someone behind trying to buy it out uh, and trying to um, threaten you or um, 
bribe. Pervert, yeah, pervert the cause of justice, basically, right? Yes, I mean, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And you, you kind of feel in danger, you know, and I already had a three-year-old boy. So oh, okay. I had to think about that too, you know. But this is remarkable. I mean, I hear all these stories about, you know, especially in the media sometimes in the world where they say, oh, it's so horrible here. But stories like Laura's should inspire everyone who's listening that this is the place where people can come not only to be safe, but uh, achieve a dream, do what she's doing, uh, practicing law. You know, Laura and I got along very well for many reasons, but one is because we both like taking hard cases. And uh, it's um, something that challenges us. And I think she has demonstrated through her actions and her giving back to the country that took her in when she needed it, but also uh, to the remarkable work that she and her team are doing, which is advancing the cause of justice daily. And it's not yeah. something that you hear people talk about all the time, but it's why you became an attorney, I, I suspect. Yeah. And um, I hope that you'll come back, Laura, uh, that you keep sharing these stories with us and keep doing this work. And that if you ever need a, a home to tell your story, we'd be happy to provide you a platform to do it. And I encourage folks who need a, a good human rights or immigration lawyer to contact Laura in Miami. We'll put her contact information on the show information. Is there anything else, Laura, that you want to share with the uh, with the listeners? No, I, I want to thank you, Jason, for inviting me. And it's always a pleasure working with you. Uh, we work well together. And I hope we can continue doing that. We will. We will. And thank you uh, for taking the time. I know you have, you have a very busy day ahead of you. Uh, thanks again for listeners for uh, joining us. And again, keep sending us your questions. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you. So that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.